After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Christ would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way, and there it was, the star they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. Amen. Thank you, Marin. Good morning, church family. How's everybody doing? Good? Merry Christmas to you all. Uh, I'd like to address something controversial right out of the gate. Yes, I do know how to tie my own necktie. Uh, people in the hallways have been making comments, and I didn't go to Baptist elementary school for four years to not come away knowing how to tie a necktie, so... Um, if you're new, my name's Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. And we as a church have a really high value on being grounded in Scripture. We, we take uh, our songs and make sure that they line up with Scripture. We walk through a biblical scriptural liturgy and, and then we devote a significant portion of our time on Sunday to teaching from the Scripture. And the main way that we like to do that is by just going through books of the Bible. We love to go through books of the Bible. Uh, we've done... Uh, you know, the book of Leviticus earlier this year, the short little book of Jude. Uh, we like to take chunks of the books of the Bible, like we did the, the, um, the Sermon on the Mount. And in January, we're going to do the parables of Jesus, looking at selections from a bunch of the different Gospels, well, the three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John doesn't record any parables. But on occasion, we like to do a topical series. But even in a topical series, we're still going to be in the Bible. And we're doing this topical series called uh, Pastor John and Pastor Aaron Ruin Christmas Carols. And uh, I, was, I was going over some of my older sermon notes. I went back and looked. This series has been brewing since 2018. That was the first time I said, uh, even in a sermon in Advent four years ago, that I wanted to do, I wanted to do a sermon called, um, you know, all the bad theology I ever learned from Christmas carols gets destroyed. And so it's been brewing for four years. We're finally doing it. I couldn't be happier. But I also am getting uh, pushback from people. So this last week, I got a text message from my own father, who listens, to the po- who listens to our sermon podcast, lives in Alaska, and he texted me a, a different podcast exploring the history of the song Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And he goes, this is a really interesting podcast, really interesting history about the crafting of Hark the Herald Angels Sing. I hope you don't try to ruin this one, Scrooge. And I was like, my goodness, Dad. Thanks. <laughs> so I'm getting pushed back from my own father. And then this last week, I come into my office, I think it was Wednesday morning, and I opened my door and slid under my office door is like a, a little homemade pamphlet, a, a hymnal. <laughs> Do you know that this hymnal consists of four and only four songs? <laughs> Mary, did you know? Do you hear what I hear? 
Away in a Manger. This one's credited to Alan Jackson. He did not write Away in a Manger. (laughs) And today's Christmas carol that we're going to ruin, which is We Three Kings, okay? Now, uh, here's the deal. If they wanted to be anonymous, they shouldn't have put the sister community groups of the Catlins and the Stuarts, because I was able to call them out by name. Many of them were here at the first service. So I do think that this is their way of saying, hey, can we just please get back to a book of the Bible? But anyways, all that to say, today we are going to look at the song, We Three Kings, and we're actually not going to look at the song. We're going to look at the story of the Magi, the wise men from Matthew chapter 2. So as you heard in our scripture reading, if you have your Bibles, open to Matthew chapter 2. That's where we will be today. Let's begin uh, just with one more word of prayer here. Join with me if you would. Lord, we want to, we want to do what the Magi did, and that is fall down and worship you. And so, Lord, I pray right now as I teach that you would guide my words and help me to only teach that which is in line with the truth of the scripture. And Lord, for every person who is here, would you help our hearts to be stirred like the wise men's hearts were stirred, that they were filled with exceeding joy. And Lord, may we be filled with exceeding joy at the opportunity of meeting with our Savior and worshiping him right now in Jesus' good name. Amen. All right, let's do this. Enough nonsense, let's dive right in. Matthew chapter two, if you have your Bibles, let's pick it back up. We heard the scripture reading. It says this, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men, and the the word underneath that there is magi or magoi in the Greek, and we're gonna explore that word a little bit more in depth in a minute here, but just notice right out of the gate what is missing. The number three, Uh, nowhere in this entire chapter does it ever say three. The three-ness likely comes from the fact that they deliver three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. However, it would be highly unlikely that this group of magi, this group of wise men, would travel with three and only three. They're carrying treasure. You need people to guard that treasure on the several thousand mile journey from the east, from Persia, where they are from. So you're like, what's, what's the problem with we three kings? Well, not three and not kings. After that, the song is actually really incredible. The lyrics are, I'm not joking. We sang some of them. I'm going to share them with you here in a minute. I really only have a problem with the line, we three kings. But there's not three. And, and, and listen to this. It says, they showed up in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born, king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. Now when Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. I think it's also interesting to note that these eastern magi, these these Persian, Median Persians, you know, where modern-day Iran is, uh, the, the ancient empire of the Medes and the Persians was known for their war horses. They were able to conquer much of the known world because they had superior horsepower, literally horsepower. And whatever this group of magi that shows up, I think it is large enough, sizable enough, and, and just uh, impressive enough to cause this great disturbance throughout the city of Jerusalem. So again, another reason why it is very unlikely to only be three. Uh, Some scholars speculate as many as 
20 or 30 in this party, all traveling together, causing this great ruckus in Jerusalem. Verse 4, so Herod, he assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, and he asked them where the Messiah would be born. Now, um, if you're a good you know, Jewish first century reader, right here is where you just roll your eyes. The king of Israel doesn't know where the Messiah is going to be born? When they answer him, I kind of like to hear it in this sort of voice. It's, you know, it's, it's my own interpretation. It's like, uh, in Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet, the prophet Micah. And he quotes Micah, you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. And this is not some obscure quote from some, you know, Dead Sea Scroll, Second Temple, Essene literature. This is from the prophet Micah and all of the people who had been in exile and who had got to come back home to the the, the land of Judea, to the land of Israel, were deeply desirous of the day when this king would show up. This is not some obscure quote. This is not one of the B-sides from a Pink Floyd album. This is like, you know, Can't Buy Me Love by the Beatles. It's really well known. And they're sitting there looking at this fool of a king who is a puppet king put in place by the Romans who doesn't even know where the Messiah is supposed to be born. Verse 7. So Herod secretly summoned the Magi, the wise men, and asked them exactly what time the star appeared. So now he's interested. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, well, go and search carefully for the child. He, he, I, it's like he's taking credit for it. Oh yeah, the scribes had to tell me. Oh yeah, go to Bethlehem. Obviously, everyone knows that. When you find him, report back to me so I too can go and worship him. Uh, question, does Herod intend to worship Jesus? This is not a trick question. No. Herod, in addition to being a puppet king, was... Um, In history, he's really well known for being paranoid and violent. He had multiple of his own sons put to death because he was afraid that they would rise up and take his throne. He had his brother-in-law killed. He's paranoid, he's jealous, he's wicked. He did some incredible construction projects, the rebuilding of the temple, certain fortresses and military establishments, but at the depths of his heart, he is an absolute coward and a wicked one at that. Verse 9, after hearing the king, they went on their way, and there it was, the star they had seen at its rising. It almost kind of gives the impression like they'd lost sight of it for a while, and then they kind of picked it back up, and it led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Quick question, let's pause for a minute here. What is the deal with this star? The Bible doesn't give us a ton of information about the star. It doesn't, you know, say, oh, it's, you know, it's, it's the Orion and it's the, you know, star N1462, you know, named as such after some science. It doesn't say it, it just says the star. Scholars, um, both Christian and otherwise, have spent centuries, centuries. I mean, you can go back to stuff from like the eight, nine hundreds of people trying to figure out what star it might be. Some theories include a comet, even possibly Halley's Comet that was kind of streaking through the sky with its tail as big as a kite. We dealt with that one two weeks ago. Uh, (laughs) Some people think that it was maybe just some sort of a regular star, bright and unusual. Um, If you want to sound really smart, you can say that it was a convergence of Jupiter and Saturn in retrograde. 
No idea what that means, but that's one thing I read. Like the idea that um, Jupiter and Saturn kind of moving in a different sort of a way and coming together, making this extra bright sort of planetary celestial appearance. I do know what it means. Stop calling me out, Aaron Lynn. But uh, actually, I came, across, I came across one this week that was new to me. Um, just the idea that the Bible will often use the language of stars when it refers to angels, and that maybe it was just a supernatural being, an angelic being, that kind of like the pillar of cloud or the pillar of fire led the people of Israel, that maybe an angelic being led the Magi. At the end of the day, we don't ultimately know. But it does raise the question, what is this idea of like a star, and we're reading the stars, and it's leading us to Jesus? Because some of you, um, maybe rightly so, you feel like, oh, that's, that kind of makes me feel uncomfortable. Are we doing Christian astrology here? Like, what is going on? So if you'll allow me just a quick digression, I think this is an important thing to think about. One of the things that's the, the most important starting point is in the book of Genesis, when God creates the heavens and the earth, it says that he creates the sun, the moon, and the stars, and he explicitly says they're going to rule over the day, and they're going to rule over the night, and they're going to serve as signs and seasons. They're going to serve for signs and for seasons. So seasons, obviously, you know, different seasons. The, the, you know, the moon gets bigger, the moon gets smaller. It doesn't actually, but it looks like that to us. Or in different seasons, certain constellations are visible and then they disappear. And, 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 but the other part about signs, that certain things will happen in the stars that will be a sign. You guys know what a sign is, right? It's something that points to the reality. It itself is not the reality, which is why God warns his people Israel in Deuteronomy, do not worship these these stars. Do not worship the sun and the moon. In Deuteronomy chapter four, it specifically says, don't bow down to them. You're about to go into this promised land. All of the peoples around you bow down and worship these stars. Don't do that. They are also not for salvation. They're not to be looked to for help. In the prophet Isaiah chapter 47, there's a part where Isaiah, you know, the the destruction of Jerusalem is coming and Isaiah says, oh, you start seeking out your astrologers and you start looking to the stars. Who's going to help us? He goes, they can't help you. Those people, they they read the stars. They're all going to burn just like everything else in Jerusalem is. So you don't look to the stars for worship. You don't look to the stars for salvation. And one other one that's not exactly biblical, but you don't look to the stars for your personality because that's just dumb. Okay, like just to say everyone born in the same month has the same personality type. Like I've met people who were born on Christmas and they're not very much like Jesus. It's just foolish, okay? (laughs) But the Bible does say literally in the first chapter that they will serve as a sign, a symbol pointing to something greater than themselves. So this star, whatever it was, Whatever it it might be, I I personally kind of think the Jupiter thing is fascinating because astronomers now can kind of rewind the the movement of the planets and the stars and kind of see like around, I think it's 3 BC, there really was a pretty impressive Jupiter in retrograde thing happening. And so, I don't know, it's kind of interesting. We don't ultimately know. What we do know is that God used a symbol, a sign in the heavens to announce the arrival of the Messiah, his son, Jesus Christ. Picking back up, verse 11. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshiped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts. Gold for a king, 
frankincense to be burned in worship like a priest, and myrrh, a spiced oil used for embalming dead bodies. What a scene. And being warned in a dream, man, they get a dream too. They got a star and they got a dream, man. God is making this easy for them. Being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. Another quick thing to notice here, just while we're doing all sorts of myth busters, it is very unlikely that this story describes the Magi arriving the night that Jesus was born. If you see a nativity scene, they almost always have, you know, you've got Joseph and Mary, you've got like a star, you've got some angels, you have the shepherds there, you have baby Jesus in a manger. He usually has red hair and green eyes looking very Irish and not very Jewish. And then you have, <laughs> and then you have the Magi there. But the Bible does not describe their appearance as showing up the night of the birth. And some of you are like, well, it says entering the house. So they weren't in the stable anymore. Now they're in the house. They were never in a stable. I preached on this on Christmas Eve. What was it, last year, two years ago? All I ever want to do is ruin people's Christmases, okay? He was, he was in the downstairs room because there was no room in the upper room for them. And he was downstairs where the animals were, but they were always in a house. They're still in Bethlehem here. But when Matthew in chapter two, verse one says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, there's something in the grammar there for the Greek that indicates more of a passage of time. It's not immediately after, it's after, like later, after these things, after Jesus was born. Also, Matthew uses the Greek word child, it's patio, not brephos, the word for infant, meaning that maybe there's been some more passage of time. Maybe he's not such a tiny little brand newborn infant. Also, we're not going to keep reading in the passage, but Herod issues the command out of his paranoid rage to kill all of the, the children, what age and under? Two. So taking a rough guess, it's like, well, maybe he's been born for a while. Maybe he's lived for a while. So we're going to kill all of the children two years old and younger. This is just my opinion. Take it for just that. But I think that the, 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 the Lord Jesus is probably at least a few months old, maybe even as old as a year it's kind of hard to figure it out. How does it go? Then they go to Jerusalem to offer the sacrifices after her, after Mary's purification. You guys remember that from Leviticus 12? How many days was the time of purification uh, after the birth of a male offspring? Do not make me ax the parable series and go back and do Leviticus again, okay? <laughs> 30 days. We don't know exactly but we do know that these magi showed up in surprising fashion. And if we're being honest, reading the Bible, when you really stop and think about it, this is a bizarre story. To put right at the beginning of the birth narrative, like you're going to tell the story of the birth of the Jewish Messiah, the birth of the, the Jewish Christ, the King. Why are there Persian stargazing war horse guys showing up randomly at the beginning of the story. Have you ever considered how strange that is? I'm really glad you asked. So let me just tell you for a minute about wise men in general, okay? Not wise guys, that's different. That's your uncle at the Christmas party next week. Wise men, okay? Wise men 
would be considered royal advisors. And pretty much this is practiced by all nations. In fact, we still have you know, people to this day in modern democratic countries that serve as you know, a, a special advisor to the president or special counsel to the governor or whatever. So the idea is to be a good leader, you need to surround yourself with people who have wisdom and insight and can help give you good advice. So every country, every government has some form of wise men as royal advisors. It's also important to remember that in the ancient world, there was a much closer connection between what we would call science and religion. They did not practice the distinction the way that we do. We have now, we we live on the other side of the age of enlightenment, the the age of science, the age of reason. And so we now have have something called, got to get it right, I was messed up, astronomy, which is science, It's data, it's math, it's looking at how the stars move, and we have something called astrology. No, yeah, astrology. I said I was messing up. Astrology, which says that Leos are very charming people, right? So it's like, (laughs) it's, it's that kind of a thing. Well, back in the ancient world, they would just kind of blend the two together. They didn't have the distinction the way that we practice it. And so they would have these wise men, these royal advisors, and they would look at the stars. And man, the ancient cultures, the ancient Persians, ancient Babylons, ancient Greeks, they were incredible at like actually doing real astronomy. But then they would also imbue it with a whole host of meaning. Another thing that's interesting to note is that it's very often one specific ethnic group one specific tribe that would serve in this role as advisors or wise men or kind of a special designation. So in Babylon, in the, in the ancient Babylonian empire, they had a tribe known as the Chaldeans. Actually, question, speaking of Leviticus, what is the one tribe in Israel that was tasked with priestly, worshiply, you know, advisory sort of duties? What tribe was that? Thank you. Okay, you got one point. Okay, you're one for two. Now, this group known as the Magi is actually one specific tribe. It is one specific ethnic group from the Median Persian Empire. There's a historian named Herodotus, who's a a Greek historian, and he wrote uh, in about the 400 BC or so, he wrote about this conquest of the Median Persian Empire, and he says this. It's got a lot of names that I don't really know how they're pronounced, but I'll do my best. He says, Deoches collected the Medes into a nation and ruled over them alone. Now, these are the tribes of which they consist. The Buse, the Paratasseni, the Strucates, the Arizanti, the Budi, and the Magi. So this, is, this is not just like some random name or some random title. It's saying this is one tribe from the Media Persian Empire, and people are selected from this tribe to serve in a specific role. They're also, if you read history, and you can read on in Herodotus, they were religious leaders. They were in charge of worship, and, and, and the, the, the specific religion that was practiced is a religion known as Zoroastrianism. Have any of you ever heard of Zoroastrianism? It's actually still around to this day. Some scholars consider it to be the oldest monotheistic religion. I think the Bible tells that people originally knew that there is one true creator God, and through sin and through folly had forgotten and began to worship the sun, moon, and stars, began to worship other deities, but there's a group somewhere over in modern-day Iran that remembered, no, I think there is just one true God, one creator God, even though they did not have a covenantal relationship with him. Interesting thing about Zoroastrianism is they're very absorbent. Like, they, they just love to take all sorts of religious ideas and kind of bring them all in. They're very kind of open-minded that way. 
And in addition to having a religious leadership position, they absolutely had a lot of political power. So while it may not be fair to call them kings, they are kingmakers. They wield a lot of political authority. They can give advice to the kings. They can say, do go to battle, don't go to battle. Watch out for this, this may be coming. So, so this is the Magi. Specific Persian political religious leaders who show up in, I mean, Israel is already not important enough. Like the nation of Israel is not a big player on the geopolitical scene in uh, this time of the world. The only thing that Israel was important for was access. All the armies just wanted to go tromping through Israel to get to wherever they were going to attack the other people. And then they go to, of all places, Bethlehem. Small little backwater Bethlehem. Yeah, it's the city where King David was born, but it's almost more like a tourist attraction, not any sort of important political city. Why are these magi? What is going on? Why are these Persian wizards showing up on their horses, causing a deep disturbance? There is a connection. Matthew's assuming you've read your Bibles. Matthew's assuming you, have, you remember that various people in the Hebrew Bible interacted with wise men, like, like um, Joseph or Moses interacted with wise men in Egypt. But right near the end of the Hebrew Bible, it tells a story of one person who not only spent a ton of time with Magi, but ended up becoming the leader of the Magi. Do you know who I'm talking about? Daniel. Daniel, the Jewish magi, the Jewish magus is the singular. Daniel chapter one tells a story of of God's people, the Israelites, continuing in their hard-heartedness, continuing to worship the sun, the moon, the stars, continuing to worship false gods, not living with God as their king. And after centuries of God's grace and mercy, they were exiled into Babylon. Mourning in lonely exile, like we sang about before. And Daniel, as, as a teenage boy, is taken out of his home, taken to Babylon, modern-day Iraq. But it says in chapter 1 that he was trained as a, a magus. It says that they ate a really healthy diet. I assume Daniel did some push-ups. It says they were really good-looking. They're healthy, they're good-looking, and they're smart. Nebuchadnezzar says, man, these Jewish dudes... They're 10 times better than any of the other magi we've ever had. And then you remember the story of Nebuchadnezzar having this dream where he sees a statue and it's got different metals and a rock rolls down the hill and and smashes the statue to bits and he won't tell his wise men, he won't tell his magi what the dream is and he goes and they say, well, maybe this guy Daniel, I think he's got a gift of being able to interpret dreams and Daniel shows up and says, I will give the credit to God and God alone. I don't have any magic powers, but God told me and he interprets the dream and Nebuchadnezzar goes, that's incredible and promotes him to chief of the magi. Chapter 2, verse 48, Daniel, uh, the king gave Daniel many high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and, listen, chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Now, as if that wasn't crazy enough that this exiled Jewish teenager has now risen to the highest ranks in the, the, the Babylonian empire, there's an even crazier thing that happens. 
One night, Belshazzar is having a big party, a lot of drinking, a lot of wild behavior. Hand appears, writes on the wall. You've been weighed and measured and you've been found wanting. And tonight, your kingdom will be taken from you. And you remember that story? Who should show up that very night? It just like in the blink of an eye, this Babylonian empire, the most powerful empire the world had ever known up until that point, is completely taken over by the Persians, the Medes and the Persians. But what's really crazy about it is Daniel survives the regime change. It says that this guy Darius shows up. He appoints 120 governors to rule over this whole area. But then he picks three magi to be in charge of the governors, and Daniel is one of those three. This is, I mean, it's, it's so crazy to think. It's like, um, imagine, or don't imagine because it's kind of upsetting, but like imagine if Russia was to attack the United States and depose all of our government and just take over and rule over us, but they left like one person, you know? I was going to say somebody, but y'all, I don't want to say that. I don't want to say the names of any politicians, so... Uh, you're like, you'd look at that, like, that's, that's kind of suspect, right? Why is that one person kind of left in charge? It's pretty amazing that Daniel goes from, you know, the leader of the wise men and the Magi and the Chaldeans to now one of the top three officials over all of the wise men in the Persian Empire. Daniel chapter 6 finishes up his story, says this, then King Darius, this is, you remember the lion's den, there's some pretty miraculous stuff that God does. So King Darius writes this letter to every people and nation and language who lives on the whole earth. He says, may your prosperity abound. Now I issue a decree that in all my royal dominion, people must tremble in fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and he endures forever His kingdom will never be destroyed and his dominion has no end. (laughs) The guy who just watched the dominion of of Babylon crumble in a night is saying, yeah, there's, there's one kingdom that will last forever and it's the kingdom of the God of Daniel. For he rescues and delivers, he performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth. For he has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. And then the story of Daniel wraps up this way. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. As far as we can tell, Daniel never went back to Judah. He never went back to the promised land. In fact, uh, if you do the math, he would have been about 90 years old when Ezra and Nehemiah got to go back. So unlikely at that advanced stage of his life that he would make that journey back. It seems like he stayed in Persia with the backing of the king behind him saying, Daniel, you should tell everyone about your God. You should should tell him what he does to rescue and to save people. You should tell him about the signs that he performs. And so, Daniel stays in Persia and tells people, yeah, you know, God made a covenant with my ancestor Abraham that one day one of his descendants would come and would be the ultimate king. And he would set the world free from sin and death and corruption. And this Messiah, when he comes, his birth is going to be marked by a star. Because Numbers 24 says, a star will come from Jacob and a scepter will rise from Israel. 
So here you have God's prophet, Daniel, being taken into exile, rising to the highest ranks possible of the Persian Empire. 500 years later, what Daniel taught and what Daniel pointed out, they see the star, they say it's game time. The Messiah is finally here. Let's pack up our horses. Let's bring the best gifts we can possibly bring and let's go worship this king. How amazing is our God? He is sovereign over human history in a way that you and I just could never hope to comprehend. This magi is not like some random little story, just all oh, kind of interesting, some, some kings show up. No, 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 no. God was, God was doing something for hundreds of years, bringing the story of his rescue to completion. So I want to share with you three thoughts about these magi as we turn to wrap this up. Three thoughts. Thought number one. I think this story shows us that Jesus is the king that every heart desires. Interesting thing, uh, I found some other quotes. A couple of different historians wrote that at the time of the birth of Jesus, there was widespread belief um, throughout the ancient world that there was going to come one new king, one new emperor, actually specifically from Judah. There's like Greek and Roman historians writing about that a king would come from Judah who would unite the whole world. It's very, very interesting from a historical perspective, but it's also interesting from a human perspective because how many of you know people want a good king. People want a good ruler. Jesus showed up at a time of intense uh, political fervor. How many of you would agree with the statement that we are currently living in a time of intense political fervor? This is where everyone starts to get a little bit more nervous, okay? But hear me on this. You and I were created by God to have him be our king. But ever since Adam and Eve in the garden, Adam and Eve said, no, thank you, God. We can live life on our own terms and we can dictate the terms of the agreement ourselves. We'll be our own kings. We'll be our own queens. Ever since that day when sin has entered into the hearts of humanity, you and I try to live as our own kings. Or when that doesn't work, we put our hopes in human kings in human rulers. I've read some articles and quoted some things to you over the last year, one article in particular that said that um, the de facto religion of America now is politics. That the kind of passion that used to go into worship and religion is now all put into politics. It's why you can't even talk to your family members at the holidays anymore because political stuff has just gotten so heated and so rancorous. You know Why? because we desire to have someone rule over us. And that's not a bad desire. We were created to have Jesus be the king over us. And if we don't have Jesus as the king and his kingdom be our ultimate political allegiance, it leads to all the division and all the upheaval and all the discord that we see right now. We want a king. We want a leader but friends, I'm here to tell you that Jesus is unlike any other king who has ever lived. Whereas the kings of the earth amass power and then they say, you come and serve me, Jesus came as a servant. 
And yes, we do serve King Jesus. We are to give our lives in service to him. But I would say you cannot serve him unless he first serves you. That's what it means to be a gospel-centered church, that before I tell you what you do for Jesus, first I tell you what Jesus has done for you. And Jesus came as a servant king, but he also came as a humble king. Very few of us would associate the word humility with politicians. But Jesus came. I love what our brother Tim said, that Jesus came. The, the, the limitless, eternal son of God came to be a helpless human baby. The humility that that takes. And actually, friends, how many of you know the manger is not the lowest that Jesus went, but the grave. To be crucified, to die for our sinful rebellion. Frankly, we're all, tra we're all traitors. We're all guilty of treason. And when the real king showed up, he had every right to issue judgment. But instead, our king showed up and took our judgment upon himself that we might be forgiven. And then on the third day, he rose, alive forevermore. And now he's ascended to the right hand of the Father where he rules and reigns over everything. Jesus is the true king. And the invitation today is, will you live as though he is the king? I'll go quicker through these last two points. Number two, Jesus is the king and his kingdom is for all people. These magi are so unlikely. First of all, Jesus is the Jewish king and he came, actually he even said that in his earthly ministry he came to the lost sheep of Israel. But how many of you know that, that Jesus did not only come for Israel, he came to fulfill that promise to Abraham that all the nations of the world would be blessed. How does Matthew's gospel end? Jesus says what? Go into all the world and make disciples of what? All nations. So here we get these Persian magi showing up right at the beginning of the story as a little preview of coming attractions. And now here we are today in the far-flung exotic land of Washington. <laughs> and the gospel has made it to us. And you're an unlikely person to be a part of the kingdom of God, are you not? And these magi are unlikely people to be part of the kingdom of God. Who do you, who have I, in my human judgment, discounted and said, they'll never come to follow Jesus? His kingdom is for all people. Who are we? Who are we to push out and exclude anyone that Jesus might want to welcome in to come and acknowledge him as king? And then lastly, number three, King Jesus requires everything. All we have and all we are must be surrendered to King Jesus. I love this picture. These magi, they show up. They show up. They make the whole city of Jerusalem quake. And yet here they are throwing themselves on their faces before Jesus. Giving him gold, giving him frankincense, giving him myrrh. Friends, Jesus is the king. And being a follower of Jesus means he has ultimate authority over every aspect of your life. He does not want just your Sunday worship and piety. He wants to be in charge of your money. He wants to be the king of your marriage and how you treat your spouse. He wants to be the king of your parenting and how you raise your children. 
He wants to be the king of your, um, your finances and the king of your business or your, uh, your work, whatever you do for your occupation. He wants to be the king of your eating and your drinking and your sexuality and every aspect of who you are to be submitted to Jesus as the king. Because if he really is the king, but he really is as humble and servant-hearted as the scriptures say he is, what could we have ever hoped for more than to surrender our lives to this king? So I'll close with the words of the song, because like I said, once you get past the words, we three kings, the song is incredible. I'm going to retitle this song, We Unspecified Number of Magi. (laughs) Born a king on Bethlehem's plain, gold I bring to crown him again, king forever, ceasing never, over us all to reign. Frankincense to offer have I, incense owns the deity who is nigh. Prayer and praising, voices raising, worshiping God on high. Myrrh is mine, its bitter perfume, breathes a life of gathering gloom, sorrowing, sighing, bleeding, dying, sealed in the stone cold tomb. But glorious now, behold him arise. King and God and sacrifice, alleluia, alleluia, sounds through the earth and sky. I'm going to invite the musicians to come up. I'm going to invite Pastor Steve to come lead us in the Lord's table. We get to gather at the table with our king. He invites us to this meal. So let's prepare our hearts to feast with the king. Jesus, thank you for this story of the Magi. As we read Matthew chapter two, there is but one king in this story, and it is you. Lord, would you help us to surrender every aspect of our lives to you? Would you help us to see you not like the kings of the earth, but one who is humble? Though you have all power in heaven and on earth, you are humble and you serve us. And may we come to you in gratitude and worship, even now at the table where we celebrate your body broken, your blood shed. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.